This is Purple Hall. Welcome to Preble Hall, a podcast about naval history from the United States Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis. Welcome back to Preble Hall. I'm Claude Barraby, director of the U.S. Naval Academy Museum. Our guest today is retired Vice Admiral Rod Remt, Naval Academy class of 1966. He was commanding officer of USS Antelope, PGM-86, USS Callahan, DD-994, and USS Bunker Hill, CG-52, a ship close to my heart. He initiated the development of Naval Theater Ballistic Missile Defense, and he was director of Surface Warfare N-76. Admiral Remp served as the 49th president of the Naval War College, and from 2003 to 2007 served as the 59th superintendent of the U.S. Naval Academy. Admiral Remp, welcome back to your Naval Academy, sir. It's great to be here. This is such a wonderful place, and and of course, it's the midshipmen that make it, and they are the best kids we have in the country. And to uh, have them here and going about their studies and, and learning about things naval and things worldwide, uh, it's just a pleasure to be back here. And you were superintendent when this museum closed for two years for renovation. Uh, was this the first time back for you in the museum since it was renovated? Uh, actually, I w- b- b- once here once before, but uh, this was, thank you for the tour and walk around today. That was uh, terrific. And and I was involved in uh, helping the classes collect the money to do this. So I, I feel a little connection to the museum from my time as soup. Well, you all did a great job. And when I inherited this place in 2012, it has still had that shiny new car smell. Right. Uh, now you're from Los Angeles. We've been doing a series with Admiral Mullen, and uh, he was from the Hollywood area as well. We are, we both grew up in the San Fernando Valley. I was in Van Nuys, and he was in, I want to say North Hollywood, but I may not have that correct. But we really grew up only, you know, six, eight miles apart. And uh, interesting, one time we were, we had, you know, you're always trying to mid, you're trying to get home for Christmas and stuff. And so we were on a charter plane together. And so our wives-to-be met in the airport because the plane was late, you know. And <clears throat> so they got to know each other before we, Mike and I really got to know each other well. But a key thing about association with him was that he was the CEO of the Noxabian, AOG, that deployed to the Mediterranean the summer of 73. And, and um, they operated with the PGs, uh, two of us, together with some Greek boats, for about three or four weeks while they were deployed. In fact, so he... He was under my tactical command for that period of time, and we would do operations with the Greek, the Greek uh, torpedo boats and missile boats, and then he'd go do some other duties and come back and refuel us and do that kind of thing. So, coming from California, what appealed to you for applying to the Naval Academy? A, a couple of things. First of all, my brother graduated in 1957, so he was 11 years older, but with nine years ahead of me at the academy. So we came, our family drove from California for his graduation, and of course that introduced me to the Naval Academy. But, um, and at some point I made the decision I wanted to go to an academy, and actually, I actually applied to the Air Force Academy, but my congressman didn't have an opening there, so when I got the nomination, he did have one at the Naval Academy. That turned out fine, because it turns out I don't fit in airplanes very well. And so I, I... uh, someone saved me from <laughs> from that, but in any case, it turned out very well. I I enjoyed, uh, you know, I went through aviation summer. I did submarine crews for two weeks, but I determined I wanted to stay surface warfare and uh, see the sunrise and set every day. Yeah. You know, Admiral, you, you there's so much I want to ask you about in your career, and I hope we can do some follow up interviews. Uh, but the focus today is going to be on a specific period in 1973. It's not really discussed that much, and it's really more or less at the height of the Cold War. Uh, and for the show notes for our listeners, I'm going to put up a link to this article called A Tale of Two Fleets, A Russian Perspective on the 1973 Naval Standoff in the Mediterranean. It's from the Naval War College Review, written by Lyle Goldstein and Yuri Zhukov. But, sir, I really want to focus on this this uh, year you had uh, in the Mediterranean commanding your first ship, the USS right. Antelope. Can you describe this ship and its purpose? It was a PGM. Yeah, and actually they were still called PGs. They never got the M on them, but they were patrol gunboats, but we had each were fitted with four missiles. There were four of us over there at the time of this, these operations. The Antelope, which I commanded, the Ready, 
uh, which was commanded by Scott Beatry, a classmate of mine, the Douglas, commanded by Larry Copeland, another classmate, and then the Grand Rapids, commanded by uh, Gordon Reinstrom. So those were the four missile arm PGs that were homeported in Naples. And, um, so that, that was before Vern Clark takes command of Grand Rapids. Okay. That's correct. All right. And uh, he was not there for these operations, but he was came in later, mm-hmm. early the next year. And um, <clears throat> the the interesting thing about these ships was that two of us, Antelope and Ready, had semi-active missiles. We had a uh, a precursor to the to the um, Mark eighty Mark ninety six Mark ninety two system. Ours was a Mark eighty seven, but it had an air track and a surface track capability, and the air track was used in a semi-active way. We would line the air track antenna on the target, and then we'd provide a CWI um, insert into that antenna, and we'd fire our standard missiles that were semi-active, guided, and so it would home on the reflection from the target. The other two ships had anti-radiation missiles. They had a Mark 105 ESM set, which they could detect and determine you know, exactly what signals they were going to shoot at, and then they would... Um, they would shoot their anti-radiation missiles. So, so they didn't emit when they were shooting, whereas the other two of us did. This made a really good combination in actuality because if we got into a shooting war and they weren't radiating the bad guys, we could lock on them with the um, radiating two ships and shoot and force them to radiate. And then the other two who had anti-radiation missiles would, could fire at those targets. It was a pretty smart thing that whoever came up with the concept developed. Um, we were four of us in the Med at that time. We were home ported in Naples. And we always uh, uh, med moored to a molo. We couldn't go port pier side in Naples, so we had to ride boats out. And we were, met, we were moored to the Graham County, a support ship, an LST, um, that provided us repairs, food, uh, you know, medical care, uh, all the things you need for these four ships. Um, by the way, I, I was 28 at the time, you know, pretty young lieutenant. And um, the four PGs reported to a PG RON, a patrol gunboat squadron. However, that was disbanded in June of 73. And um, then the CEO of the Graham County, who was a lieutenant commander, uh, became our reporting senior. Um, that wasn't always perfect because then you had the person who was supposed to have taken care of your ship and repair it be your boss, you know, was, but it worked okay. We operated all over the Mediterranean, went to many ports um, in Italy, of course, a number of ports in Italy, a number of ports in Greece, Turkey, uh, Spain, including, uh, you know, Majorca, um, Tunisia, um, maybe miss a few, but it was, you know, for a young lieutenant with, with a ship operating with all these navies and doing things, it was, it was pretty heady. Did, was the crew granted liberty in, in most of these ports? Uh, yes. Oh, oh, yeah, we did liberty for sure. And, um, uh, you know, part of it was we go to the port, we interface with the Navy people there and stuff, but we also have liberty. And um, we also allow uh, large numbers of people to tour the ships, you know, just around the deck, really. But mm-hmm. these are missile arm boats, you know, pretty, we could have one of the missiles raised and we had a really neat video that they could see it fired, you know, and do all that. But, so it was a public relations as well as um Liberty for the crew. And to give a sense to our midshipmen who who listen to the uh, show as well, uh, the, the PGs weren't that much larger than the YPs. 165 feet and um, about 380 tons. When they put the missiles and other improvements on them, uh, they got fairly heavy compared to their design. Their design was more like, I don't know, 260 tons. We had a three-inch gun. We had these four surface-to-surface missiles. We had four you know, 50-caliber machine gun mounts. And that was the extent of our, our armament. But it was pretty effective. Uh, the three-inch gun was very accurate. And, um, and we, we could use it. The two of us that had air search radars, we could use it against aircraft. So it was, um, it was, it was a very effective ship. They were powered by two diesel engines, normally up to 12 knots, and then a gas turbine for 42 knots. So they were pretty speedy. But, of course, you suck fuel pretty fast with a gas turbine. So... You used it when you had to, mm-hmm. more or less, whatever. Um, <clears throat> it was, um, they were, you know, a great command for a young lieutenant. And uh, we had four officers, four chiefs, and 22 E6 and below on board. 
Well, thanks to the Naval History and Heritage Command, they've got they provided me with a copy, a declassified copy of uh, your command history for that year. And I was looking through the names. When uh, do you recall what it was like to relieve your predecessor, Lieutenant James Bates? Sure. What was that day like? Um, I relieved him on, uh, I want to say, like the third of January or something in '73. And um, my wife and I flew over before Christmas because the key thing was try to get a place to live. And so we went to work on that for a while, and then I got to the ship and, you know, went through some relieving at that time. But I can tell you, for me, it was pretty exciting. I mean, here I'm flying into Naples, Italy, and taking command of a U.S. Navy ship, a small ship with a close-knit crew, and um, they had transited a couple months prior over from Little Creek to, uh, to Italy, and they had gone in, in concert with a bigger ship. Mm-hmm. I forget the, who that was, but... Um, and so on the 3rd of January, I relieved, and... And the next thing I know, the, the Sixth Fleet commander calls and said, um, I want to take my staff out for a, a Sunday afternoon uh, family cruise. Would you come up to Gaeta? And actually, the port was Formia, Italy, <clears throat> and do that. I said, yes, sir. You know, So we left the next morning early. It wasn't far away. And um, we went up to Formia, and we picked up maybe 35 Sixth Fleet staff and went out to sea. And had a great time. I, I didn't shoot the three-inch guns, but I shoot the 50s, you know, and stuff where it was safe and and, um, and came back in. And, of course, they were happy, and we was happy. And then I went back to Naples. And then later on, the first first port visit we really went to was um, uh, La Maddalena on Sardinia. And we went there to preserve. There were there was, three of us went. We went there to preserve a U.S. presence because there had been an agreement made that a submarine tender could come into La Maddalena, but it wasn't going to get there for another six or seven months, and the, and the Navy folks didn't want to lose the continuity of having a flag there. And then from there, we went to Monaco, which is a tremendous, we moored in the yacht basin, you know. Probably the smallest ship there. It's the smallest, <laughs> it, it could be, it could be, but it was neat. So I want to go back to something you said, you were 28 when you took command now, you know, yeah. Mids in my naval history class know that during the uh, Barbary War, War of 1812, there were a lot of captains who were lieutenants, captains of ships who were ranked lieutenant, who were 24, 25 years old. You saw this again during World War II. You had PTs. You had submarines commanded by lieutenants. And I think to still a, a large degree during Vietnam. That's something we don't have now. What were the benefits of your, I mean, or what was the what was the feeling you got when you took command well, it was, such, as such I say, age. pretty pretty exhilarating. Here, I mean, you know, I came off a department head tour on a destroyer, a DDG, where we did a lot of shore bombardment in Vietnam, and here I am over in Naples, Italy, taking command of a ship, and not really knowing what the operations are going to be completely. We worked for CTF-67, the ASW guy, but he also had the surveillance mission. We knew we were going to do a lot of surveillance, which is what we did, but it was uh, pretty exhilarating, you know, a chance to uh, set some of my own policies and and um, see see if I could get this crew um, up on the step both professionally and let them have some fun and have a great time, which we did. So, I want to note something from this article that I mentioned before, just to give some context of what you were going to encounter here. Uh, and again, this is from the Naval War College Review, where they they mentioned that during this year, 1973, Soviet destroyers shadowed the USS Forrestal in mid. January of 73 near uh, Thessaloniki, Greece. The 5th Escadra warships conducted surveillance and analysis of extensive NATO exercises on the 21st of February, a massive search operation for U.S. forces on 9 May, another in, uh, surveillance of U.S. ballistic missile-carrying submarines from their departure at Rhoda. At what point, I mean, do you get this, the sense of, of heightened tensions, or was this really normal operating procedure yeah, during the Cold War. The tensions were heightened, but we immediately got involved in surveilling Russians all the time. Mm-hmm. We followed them across the, you know, across the Mediterranean. We went to their anchorages. We went to, I remember, Malila Anchorage. I probably was there six or eight times. And every time we would submit an intelligence report, what ships were present, and, and so to keep that up to date. So we served as that. Once I followed a, a um, Zulu-class submarine from... Gibraltar all the way over east of uh, Cyprus. It was on the surface, and uh, they obviously they knew it was coming. They set me up, and I just trailed it for two and a half days. It was going slowly across the Med, 
And uh, we also, at one point, I, I took aboard a big sound develop, uh, generating device, and we put it in the water and used it to test what I think now we would know would be um, underwater arrays to verify that it was working properly and whatever. And uh, we did that, oh, southwest of Sicily. So we were, we were heavily engaged in surveillance involved. The other thing we did is we um, operated with our own SEALs, and I had both Turkish and Greek SEALs on board at different times and NATO exercises. And um, mostly it was exercises. I probably still can't talk about the few operational ones that we did, but we did. We did real operations with the SEALs, and um, <clears throat> it was, um, that was a big part of our uh, 67 was responsible for the SEALs there, so we did a lot of work with them. So it was a, it was a busy time. I, uh, the, the fact that we were following the Russians around a lot, I mean, it was clear knowledge to them. There wasn't any, you know, skullduggery or anything, but we did, um, we did a lot of that. So we were really focused on a surveillance mission at the same time that we were doing NATO exercises and stuff. It's really amazing when you think of the num the sheer numbers at that time. I think there were close to 50 U.S. warships in the Med. There were about 60 Soviet warships, and by the end of the year, they have more than 100 ships right. on the Med. That's a, that's a, look, the Med is a big place, but it's not that big. Not that big. The, the interesting thing to me about the circumstances then was that Mostly the Russian came, Russian ships came into the Med and anchored, and all of our ships were operating all the time. You know, launching aircraft, uh, reforming into different formations, doing ASW exercises, tracking Russian subs, etc. And so we were much more operational day to day than the Soviet ships. Why weren't they? I, I don't know. I suspect them. Um, you know, uh, there were fuel considerations. Uh, but what's clear to me as watching all this take place is that we were really up on the step in training, and I, I have no idea how much the Russians were up on the step. So. When you pulled into port for uh, Liberty, uh, did you ever encounter uh, Russian crews or even some of your Russian counterparts? Um, yes, and that kind of starts from how we got involved in the Arab-Israeli or Yom Kippur War. We, one of the port visits we made, Ready and Antelope, we went into split Yugoslavia. This is the first U.S. ship since right after World War II. T and Tito's in charge. I mean, this that's, is that's correct. Was, that must have been unusual to have. It, to it go into was, and we were country. we were going in to kind of test the waters before the Sixth Fleet flagship made an official visit. So the two of us, the two of us, went in there, and um, and we were well welcomed, completely. I mean, it was very good, and I think I had two thousand visitors circle my little ship in the three days we were there. Or so and and um, we met the town leaders, you know, we met the military leaders, and it was a, it was a positive visit in, in the main. What was interesting is the, um, we were surveilled by KGB all the time, so the COs, we had KGB handlers, I mean, no question, and the only time they really didn't know where I went was I went for running, you know, I went off for a five-mile run, and they were in suits, and so they just let me go, but, but then partially through this, um, we were told by, by Sixth Fleet to go out to the airport and see what's going on there. So I did. I went in civilian clothes. I dropped the KGB guys, you know, and, and went out in a taxi and had them take me around out there. And I counted five Aleutian aircraft that were clearly refueling in their cargo planes. They're headed, and you know, and then took off. I don't know where they were headed, of course, but assumed they were headed for either Egypt or Jordan. And um, so I made that surveillance report back to, you know, powers that be, that was a little little indication. We were then get, starting to get information about the war starting up, right, significantly. And, um, and what was interesting then is we said, we told the port officials there, we, were, we were, got orders to get underway a day early. And they said, no, you cannot. You must remain here for the remainder of your scheduled visit. And so they were being a little huffy. And so we said, well, we're going to leave at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. No, we, we don't permit that. And one, one guy even laughingly said, we have a shore battery out there, you know. Well, of course, we left at 7. We were gone before they... The idea, right? <laughs> and, uh, and then that's when we then went down to Crete to begin these other operations. And, um, yeah. uh, and what we met down there was the LST support ship that came over from Naples and eventually the other two PGs. So there were four PGs in the support ship then. On October 1st, uh, in your command history, it says that there was a missile firing, the first successful firing of the interim surface-to-surface -surface right. missile system. Right. Yeah, sure. Discuss that? We were in Suda Bay, Crete. This is before we went to split Yugoslavia. 
So we, we set up to do this. It had been long scheduled, and we set up to do um, with the Greeks. To, they were going to provide us a target, really, the target drone boat, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe 20 feet long, and it was a, it was a real target. And they had a missile range there and off of Suda Bay, out in the ocean, out in the med, and they provided good clearance and everything. And then we set it all up, and our missiles had a, you know, horizon range of maybe 25, 30 miles. So this was maybe more than 18, 20 miles. But, of course, we couldn't see the target. So we, of course, safety-wide, we verified that the target was there and that it wasn't a farrier. And, um, and then backed off and shot our missile, and it was, it was very successful. I mean, we were extremely pleased. I mean, here the missile, you know, the first time they've really shot these, they built these and installed them on the West Coast, but hadn't really um, shot them in any s significant way. I know they did a lot of tests, but... But uh, so we shoot this missile. It's a pretty dramatic photo too. It flies up over the pilot house, you know, and flies forward and goes over the horizon. We see this, you know, big explosion, and um, so we were pretty happy that we were able to shoot one and it was successful. Does this system become evolve into something it, else? I would say it's a precursor of a harpoon, but a much shorter range, less capability, mm -hmm. smaller warhead, and you know, all of that. But the idea was, can we put these surface-to-surface -surface missiles on small? smaller ships so that they would work. We had some harpoons then on PHMs for a short period of time, just for kind of testing more. Let, um, this missile was not a real anti-ship missile. It was an, an air defense missile converted to use against other ships. Still would be very effective. I mean, it has blast frag warhead um, that, that would detonate about 40, 50 feet off the ship. You know, it'd be pretty devastating, but still it would be it was not made to sink the ship, unless it's a small ship. Let's step back from that then for just a moment to, to provide a little more, more context on, on your type of ship. Uh, we, we all know what carriers do, what ballistic missile subs are supposed to do, what destroyers are supposed to do. What's the mission, or what was the proposed mission of yeah. the PGMs? Uh, should I say PGs or PGMs? The, the, um, you know, obviously we could do the surveillance mission or whatever, but in wartime, the, the sole objective was to hide out somewhere and then attack enemy ships based on intelligence information or whatever we had. And we would typically be working independently only because if we were around other U.S. ships, we were the vulnerable ones, you know. Um, we did, I bet we did 10 exercises, NATO, with other forces as well as our own, where there was a there was an enemy force, frequently one of our aircraft carriers, you know, with, with a few escorts. And <clears throat> we would then set up in different, four different locations, maybe 150 miles apart between our ships, our little PGs. And we, we, of course, had to have intelligence information as to where these guys were going. And, of course, they would use their airplanes to search for us. As far as I know, they never found any of us because we would, we would go in and tie up to rocks I once went in a cave in, in Crete, the island of Crete. The Greeks showed me where this cave was, and I was able to go in there and suspend myself in the walls. So no way the aircraft are going to find us. And then we'd pick the time, usually at night, and we'd attack them from over the horizon. You know, we'd make reports because obviously they couldn't see us. We, were, we had balsa wood superstructures and very thin aluminum hulls. The radar cross-section was smaller than a fishing boat. So very hard to detect us, and, we, and if we were coming in to do an attack, we'd shut everything off so they couldn't get our, our radar signals and radar, radios. And um, so we'd, we'd come in from four different directions and then fire our missiles at a coordinated time at the targets that we were going after, and then we'd make our reports. And, of course, they frequently debunked those, said, well, you guys weren't even there. So we, then we'd come in really at high speed and circle the ship a few times, you know, so they knew we were there. But... So our, our real mission was anti-ship um, missile firing in the event of a war. And so a war does happen on October 6th. Syria right. and Egypt attacked Israel, the beginning of uh, the Yom Kippur War. Do you remember hearing about this for the first time, and were you given right. any guidance? Well, we were in split Yugoslavia, so, so we were in a Soviet port in large measure, you know. Yugoslavia is independent, but still, um, mm -hmm. and so that's where, as I described, <clears throat> we then left left early, both a, a day early and time-wise we left early, and we transited to Suda Bay Crete, and that's where we met up with the support ship, and we had to make sure we were topped up on ammunition, 
everything from 50 caliber to <clears throat> three inch and et cetera. That every, and they, we, you know, we had, he always had a few things to fix on those boats because they were in rough weather often. So fix everything, get us ready, load us out with food and fuel and um, anything else we needed to get us through that period of time. When you're top, uh, when the PG was topped off for water, fuel, right. ammo, food, et cetera, how long could, I, mean, I don't think this is no, classified now, but I, how, how long could you Six stay out there? Six to eight days, the, the limiting thing was water. Yeah, we had no way yeah. to make water. So it was a, a difficult, you know, that was a limiter. I mean, it's a small sure. boat. It can only sure. carry so much. Fuel, if we were careful how much we used the, the turbine, we could go um, we could go probably 10 days on fuel on diesel engines. And, um, <clears throat> and, and food, we could pack food all over. And, you know, that wasn't a limiting factor, just diversity and fresh stuff we had. So, and we couldn't really unwrap that stuff from other ships. We did some, but... Mostly, we went back to our support ship, and they topped us out. And um, so let me, our, our mission at that point, as I recall it, and I'm sure it's written down somewhere, was to identify ships, their home ports and deck cargo of all the ships departing the Bosporus and coming down through the eastern Aegean and heading uh, off to either probably Egypt or Jordan. We didn't know where they were going. But um, we did that for about four, four and a half weeks, the four ships, and I'll describe how we went about that, but um, it was, um, the, typically these ships would come down pretty close to the Turkish coast and then go west of Rhodes, because in between Rhodes and Turkey is not the best place to be on a big ships. And then they take a course for south of Cyprus, and that's what we were doing. So we were intercepting them between Crete and Rhodes, essentially, because it was a narrow spot and we could be sure we'd, we'd get them. And there'd be three of, three of us on station at one time, separated by about oh, 15 miles. So we couldn't quite see each other, but we knew where we were, you know, and we'd each take different ships, and we'd close them <clears throat> and go across their stern so we could read their name. If there was, it was daytime, we could photograph deck cargo. And most of, if it was deck cargo, it was mostly covered. We did see some aircraft crates that we could identify. We did see... Like some tanks that weren't covered at a couple few times, but um, and then we'd submit intel reports back. We we'd have to read the letters on the back of the ship. Many of them were painted out, and others were not. And we could generally, with our either daytime easily at night, we'd use night vision scopes and and get the names. But of course, they're in Russian, so we're reading you know backwards s you know all these different. We didn't know much about what Cyrillic, right? But um, yeah. But we submitted the reports and told them exactly what they were and all we could say in their course and speed, you know, which was generally the same because they're in, the, in this transit location. But it was, um, in order to get ready to do this, we, we knew we were going into a war footing. And so we shot our guns. We, we taught each other refresher first aid. We had a corpsman on board who could teach first aid, you know, what do you do with people bleeding and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, as I say, we topped up our our, miss our ammunition, checked our missiles out, so we knew they were up to snuff, you know, ready to shoot. Um, there were a couple of incidents that were interesting. We were, we were out, I was transiting north of Crete, heading east to go back on the station, and um, this aircraft appears out at a long distance, and we're, you know, we're ready to go. We're ready to shoot. I mean, my gun's manned up, you know, everything, and we're tracking this aircraft, and it begins to dive toward us. And it, as it does, we had said, you can open fire on anything that shoots at us, right? I mean, that was rule. And we had these two twin 50s on either side. And I'm, I see this aircraft dive, and I hear my gunner do the double cock of the 50. He's ready to shoot, okay? And this guy releases something. It looks like a bomb. I mean, it really did. And as it gets closer, I see it's an A7, you know? I say, see, see. in fact, I tackled the guy because he was about to shoot. I mean, no question. And I commended him, but but the bottom line is um, the A-7 passes over, as does his wing tank. It passes over us and goes into water. Well, I sent a pretty irate report to the carrier, and I said, this is unacceptable, you know. And they, they tracked it down, find the pilot. He got a good talking to by the, you know, you can't use the PGs as aim points for your whatever. But So that was one little thing. Um, another thing was the... The night operations, we used night vision scopes, et cetera. But now we had to approach these ships really close. So, you know, the ship would be headed south, and we're headed kind of northeast to get around behind him. 
And I tried a couple of these on diesel engines, and I found I was they were very dangerous because we approached the stern, and, and one time this ship, as we were approaching the stern, puts on left rudder. I know, I know he didn't know I was there. It came to a turn point or something. So I'm looking at this huge wall of a ship approaching me at high speed. Now, we had controllable pitch propellers, and, and um, I just went to full astern, and the, prope- the propellers get there in 1.2 seconds or something. You know, we're moving backwards. But I was not sure we were gonna, that he was going to clear, but we did. Fortunately, you know, we're backing up at, at a good clip, and his, his whole stern just sweeps past us, you know. But, and uh, at nighttime, it was just, um, um, it's, it, it was a challenge to do our job. But that's what we were there to do, so we did. Um, it, was, it was 24-7. So what we would do, we'd have three of us on station. One of us would be back at the, had transited back to the support ship in Suda Bay. And, we'd, and the minute we got there, we went to sleep because we were exhausted. We had been out for three or four days, actually five or six days, and we were completely exhausted. Myself, as a CO, I was up, I slept in my chair on the bridge at night, you know, and, and um, <clears throat> it, was, it was exhausting for the whole crew. So we'd tie up to the Graham County, and we'd give them our list of work and how much food we needed, and we'd go to sleep. And so the Graham County crew came aboard, filled our fuel tanks, our water tanks, Delivered all the food, any fresh stuff they had, or some baked goods that they'd made, you know, and and um, <clears throat> and after about ten, twelve hours, we'd begin to emerge, and then I'd go over and report to my boss, you know, say here's what we're doing, and and then at, after about sixteen to eighteen hours, we depart again, and we transit back along the northeast coast of Crete, back out to where the other ships were operating, and once I got near to them, the other guy would leave to go back to the Suda Bay, and and we did that. Uh, for those four, four and a half weeks, it was pretty demanding any way you look at it, but also rewarding because we were doing something real. Now, the other things that occurred is <clears throat> at night, um, we saw two things on different nights. One was some um, Egyptian Osa boats, okay? So Russian-built Egyptian. They were darkened. We were darkened, okay? And then we would, another night we saw Israeli SAR boats, missile boats, so those boats are coming up as far as that area. I don't know if they're looking for each other or whatever they were about. All of us are darkened, completely darkened. We kept our radars on so they knew who we were, but they didn't have theirs on. We could identify them by, by silhouette with night vision scopes. And, of course, we're ready. I'm following them with my gun, you know, if they're going <laughs> to. But it was, it was pretty hairy at, at different times. Then the powers that be came up this idea where, where we may do it a landing in um, in Jordan or wherever it was, a reinforcing landing. So you know there are Marines on on amphibs out there, big time. There are two carriers, I think, by this time, and a lot of forces. And so they assigned the two PG, the four PGs, two on one side and two on the other side of the landing beach, with the idea our mission was to keep the OSA boats away. Okay. Well, this is going to be a high risk operation anyway. You looked at it. And my concern was too much the OSA boats. I mean, that, that's the enemy. We're going to deal with that. My real concern was going to be U.S. pilots. So I, in fact, got a hold of a bunch of red paint and blue paint and white paint. And I was going to paint my upper superstructure red, the, the main superstructure <laughs> blue, and the hull white. And I had enough paint to do that. So if we were going to actually be ordered into this position, they were going to know who I was relative to uh, U.S., so I could concentrate on the bad guys rather than defending myself against our own aircraft. And so anyway, it was a pretty pretty interesting thing. Uh, we got very good support from the Graham County in this in this endeavor. I mean, they came aboard. You know, seldom would you allow another group of people come aboard and fuel your ship and fill up the water and do those kinds of things. But that's what we did because that's what we had to do, and um, it worked pretty good. The rough. We also had pretty rough seas during this time. I can remember six, eight, ten-foot seas, and we're in the smaller boats, you know, so we're going up and down. Because and you're only on the draft of a boat, what, um, five and a half feet? Yeah, with the screws, it was more like 12 because we had these big mm-hmm. controllable pitch oh. screws. But, um, and the, the, they, were, they were notoriously unstable. But, uh, you know, over time, you just get tired from riding the rough seas, and then they'd calm for a bit, you know, and rough up again. But um, uh, it was... That we did learn quickly that the safest way to approach these other ships that we were identifying was 
when it was we were darkened because they wouldn't see us. They wouldn't see us on radar until we were really close. They didn't know what we were, and we had freedom of maneuverability. Um, uh, except, you know, I said there could have been exceptions, but I don't, I don't know that. Um, it was a, it was a, a bit of a heady time to be a young CO out there, and of course we expected any time to be engaged by someone. And we were ready. I mean, we were ready. I was not going to get engaged without firing a shot that mm-hmm. I knew we were going to, sh- we were going to defend ourselves. And um, that little three-inch gun was was very effective. So if there was something within four thousand yards, we were going to, and it fired rapidly. So we would get. I was pretty certain we'd get some hits, if, even if it was too close to shoot the missiles. So, what was the pace of the practice and the training and training firing was, exercises? How training much was practice? Extremely high. I fired my three-inch every week. We fired fifties. You know, that's all we had. Yeah. Um, and, um, but, <clears throat> I mean, the whole purpose of being on a small ship, everybody gets to do things. Everybody got to shoot the 50s at some point. You know, we'd, we'd put a couple of targets out there of some kind, or we'd find some barrel drifting in the water, and we'd shoot at it. And, and the same thing with the three-inch guns. There was a small island just north of Crete where we could shoot the gun against shore. Now, that wasn't the concern in this particular operation, but we did that repeatedly. We'd shoot maybe 10 rounds, you know, we'd spot ourselves on and then shoot some effect. And um, so, every, you know, the whole crew, every time we fired guns and stuff, everybody's getting up for, you know, we're going to have to do something here for real. And it was, so the training level and the, the enthusiasm for what we were doing was pretty high. But then over five or six days in rough seas and approaching ships, we were pretty wiped out because the small ships, you know, you take a battery. And so by the end of... Or in early November, you're uh, you're no longer in what in this it's called special surveillance ops, which is that's correct. Yeah, and that you know we, these, these history reports are unclassified, yeah, sure. so we couldn't we couldn't even mention what we were doing, right. but but that's what we were doing, and uh, we got we got a number of kudos from you know from Sixth Fleet and from higher ups because we were we were out on the edge there, and um, and we submitted as I say I don't know the exact number, but I know it was over seven hundred reports. In that period of time, were those mostly merchant ships you were yes, tracking? No question. Yeah, um, I think we saw three or four Russian ships, but they were already mostly down there. So, yeah. this is a two-part question: What did you pick up from your time as a midshipman that you think helped when you were in command of Antelope? And then the second part of that is, based on your experiences on Antelope, what do you think helped you when you were in command of Callahan, of Bunker Hill, and Really, later on, even a soup. Easy answers. As a midshipman, I was on the gym team for a while. I, I did a few other things, but I joined the YP squadron, and I qualified as a Correct. seaman, as an engineman, as a navigator, as an officer of the deck, commanding officer, and then I was the commodore of the YP squadron my first class year. So I, I knew how to talk on radios. I knew how to maneuver ships, um, and so I was a huge leg up when I graduated from here, as far as surface warfare operations. And of course, that translated to the PG. Of course, by that time, I'd, I'd been an <clears throat> qualified as an officer deck on a DLG and then on a DDG, and, you know, did three different deployments over the Western Pacific. So I was pretty well qualified. But the YP squadron, and a lot like its sail, sailing craft to me, are the best way to train midshipmen because they have everything you need teamwork, leadership. Um, Mariner skills, weather—you uh, you get exposed to all of that in real time, in real situations. When I was superintendent, I dramatically increased the number of midshipmen who were qualifying as COs of YPs and skippers on sailboats, and <clears throat> we made that a very incentivized effort. And it's still not easy. I mean, it, it takes a bit, but um, it to me that is the best thing that we can do here. Just an aside, I think we could do a little less marching and a little more sailing, you know. But, but uh, it, it's, it, that was clearly made, prepared me for this, no question about it, because I can maneuver this ship uh, handily anywhere at all. We frequently transferred, traveled at 50-yard intervals, you know. <clears throat> the four of us, we'd be 50 yards apart, traveling sometimes at 40 knots. Were but, the COs of the other ships also Naval Academy grads? Um, not all of them, yeah. no, but... but um, had you met any of them while you were doing YPs? Um, the gr- academy grads or the... The academy grads, yeah. Um, no. Because I don't think ROTC had... They didn't have the same degree of access. Yeah. They had some, but right. not the same. Um, 
No, they were, they, you know, well, Vernon Clark's not an Catholic grad, so he's, um, <clears throat> when he came in, Gordon, who he relieved Gordon Reinsch from is not. Mm -hmm. But that didn't really matter much. I knew in my own personal experience, though, I was well equipped to, to go to the ship. And your second question was about the future and how did right. how did this this month or really the, yeah, the entire can, year affect your future? I can point out six or seven times where I made bad decisions as a lieutenant CO. Twice I put the entire crew in life jackets preparing to abandon ship. Okay, so I learned a lot of really tough lessons in in a small scale. Right, luckily escaped these <laughs> these crises and. Um, and lived to tell them about it. But you learned a lot about navigation. You learned a lot about being at sea at night and, you know, what can befell you. I learned about a bunch of the charts I used around Kithra and Crete, or, you know, 1888 British surveys. I mean, give me a break here. The Greeks would take me into a place, okay, these two tor torpedo boats would tie up to a pier. Come on in. And I said, how deep the water? Oh, the water's fine. I put my uh, motor well boat in the water, and we went in and sounded it. It wasn't fine, so I had to either anchor or find a place, you know, one place that was a rock within about eight feet of the surface, and I grew 12 feet. You know, I, So I couldn't depend on that kind of stuff, but that taught me a lesson as a, uh, as a destroyer and cruiser seal. You better know where you're going and have good information. Um, so that, that was key. And also, you know, how do you motivate people in long, dragged-out operations? And um, so it was a huge break, a huge thing. I think I always believed that creating these CO co lieutenant commands are critical to training people as officers. And we've, as you say, to me, for instance, the LCSs ought to be lieutenant commanders. And the, the P we've had PCs for a while. I think they're on the way out now. But we ought to have four or five squadrons of these PCs that, Certainly, they, they provide a lot of help, surveillance and other things, but <clears throat> they train young officers to be commanding officers, and uh, no question about that. So, Now, the, uh, when I was giving you the tour, you had mentioned your command of Callahan and thinking of going into Shanghai and right. what you did really to prevent a potential right. problem there. Could've, and that's, that's the same thing you're talking about. You know, is, can I get into that uh, small yeah. waterway? And I, you know... Because we were operating in austere environments in the Mediterranean, which you don't think of as steer, but it's, they're austere because there's no support. Um, one time, it, the, the weather had really kicked up. We were in Suda Bay Crete, different operation. And um, <clears throat> so I was supposed to go out in surveillance ops between Kithra and Andy Kithra Island, which is to the northwest of Crete. And, um, and so I started out, and as predicted, the waves were exactly as the weather predicting. We were in 18, 20-foot waves, and so I couldn't make much progress, but... You know, as I got into it and realized this, I was getting closer to Andy Kithra than I was to Crete. So I said, I'm just going to go in. You know, my, my surface search radar broke off and fell in the water. You know, my, I mean, we were in rough seas. Uh, there was a big motor controller box for the anchor windlass up in the forward part of the ship. And it was mounted to a bulkhead with bolts. All the bolts broke and the thing fell on the deck because of the force of the ship you know, trying to get through waves. So we finally pulled into this uh, protected air harbor in Antikythera, and there was a pier there. And under NATO rules, we could go into any any NATO port under force majeure, you know, we, if we had a problem. So I went in there. I couldn't fit on the whole pier, but I could get, I put my bow, because we had no nothing down there on the sand, mm -hmm. and tied up the rest of my ship alongside this pier. And then I had to get off the ship and go into town. We had a phone number to call at the Greek the U.S. Embassy, so I called them and say, hey, I have just moored in this port because of the weather is so bad. And, um, and but again, you know, knowing where to go and how to get there and worrying about, can I really tie up to this pier? You know, I don't know. While we were in there, I got maybe 30 merchant ships came in. It was a big harbor. And I'd say 15 of them were Russian. So we just started sending off intelligence reports. <laughs> Earlier you mentioned that uh, you almost called abandoned ship. That's right. Can you discuss the circumstances? Yes, I, I'll of that? tell you tell you one of those. Um, so we had a group of seals on board, U.S. seals. We were up near the Turkish Greek border and operating with some Turkish forces, and so <clears throat> we did this operation. And part of it, they had brought a sled carrying a swimmer delivery vehicle. Okay, so this small submarine that they sit in chairs. There's no, they're not enclosed, 
but they can use it to maneuver in the water and go a long ways, you know, a number of miles. So part of this exercise, we launched a swimmer delivery vehicle. They did this operation, went into shore, you know, did whatever the exercise was. They usually took fireworks with them, so we could see them lighting off the fireworks at night, you know. And then we, re we, we recovered them. We, it, my responsibility was the safety of the sled. The responsibility of the SEALs was to make sure the swimmer delivery vehicle was secured inside the sled. Well, we had a little bit of weather. It was worsening, but we got underway, and we had a transit about, oh, I don't know, 150 miles back to where the support ship was where I could pass a sled to them, right? And they would lift it aboard and do that. So off we go, and we're doing, doing well. As we approach, though, where the support ship is anchored, the waves are now up 15 feet, and, and we're on the kind of a, it's, it's not as well protected as a harbor. So I'm, this is where the CO made a mistake. So now I want to pass, I want to get rid of this sled because it's, I'm, you know, I'm towing it astern. So we get all set up, and we, you know, shot lines and everything and do this. And we pull up alongside the support ship on, the, on her port side, and we've got the sled in tow, right? And it's got maybe a or 250 line foot line, you know, regular line, a nylon line to tow with it with. And we so we pull up alongside, we shoot our shot our shot lines and everything, and start to get ready to transfer the sled. And what I didn't realize, of course, I'm I'm into the wind, right? But I've I've got like eight knots rung up, and we're holding our own next to the ship. Well, we weren't really. We are drifting back. So I picked up the line on one of the screws, and of course, what I hear is the, la the engine laboring up, right? And then I see the sled jump out of the water and race towards us, right? Um, <clears throat> and slam into the side of my ship, right? Under with some severe force, right where the engine room is. So I called the engine room, you know, you're taking any water? No, we're not. Okay, so now I've got this sled wrapped around my screw on one side. I've secured both engines, right? I don't know what the other side. And we're on the windward side of this beach, which is about a mile and a half behind us, and, um, and we're in rough seas. Well, immediately what these ships do, they turn beam to the seas. And I'm rolling, you know, I'm rolling 45, plus or minus 45 degrees. I've got this line that one of the seals want to go down and cut it free, and I, I said, I can't put you underneath the ship when, when we're in the ocean, you know, moving like that. So now we're drifting back to the shore. So the XO and I look at the chart. Okay, this is the one spot where we can drop the hook and maybe it'll hold. And so I said, you know, everybody in life jackets, because we don't know, we could be aboard, we could be on the rocks in a moment. I would, the, the other thing we'll do if the anchor doesn't hold, we'll light the port engine and see if we can motor ahead without, you know, picking up some more line or whatever. So we had a couple of options of things we could do. We're, you know, we get everybody organized to do that, everybody in life jackets, um, <clears throat> and we're drifting, and we approach this spot, and we drop the anchor, and the anchor holds, okay? So then we spent the rest of the night with the ship riding these huge waves, and the, the sled, which is sunk underneath the ship, comes up against the screws, <laughs> you know, just shudder, you know, big, so I'm thinking, my, my screws are destroyed, you know, I, I have no idea what the... So it started to calm, and then, you know, along about 9 or 10 in the morning, none of us got any sleep, of course, and the seals, a couple of seals go down, they cut the line line loose, and we let the sled go up in the rocks, because it was destroyed. By the way, they had lost the swimmer delivery vehicle, so it didn't have the expensive delivery vehicle in it, but it did, but the sled wasn't worth much, but, but, um, <clears throat> and so, you know, we kind of get all the lines cut off the shafts, we're okay, we turn the engines back on. And, and I say, okay, we'll see what happens. And you know, we get underway, pick up the anchor, get underway, we motor out, and um, we test everything with the engines and the reduction gears. You know, everything seems to be okay. Hour later, we're running at 42 knots. And I, you know, as a CO, there but for the grace of God. <laughs> and, uh, and it was a pretty scary night anyway, Ron. You know, when you put, when the, when you, Tell the crew to put on their life jackets, and the seal puts his on. Everybody's wearing a life jacket. Mm -hmm. I can tell you that. And, um, yeah, but it, we're, there were some exciting times. But those are lessons that I learned that were that you can't just because you're going ahead on the engines, you can't you can't be sure that the ship is going ahead. You know, so there's some key lessons that were formative. But well, sir, this is uh, this has been a, 
a quick episode and uh, there's so much more, as I said, that from your career that I would love to chat with you about at some point in the future if we could do this. You bet. And uh, I want to thank you, sir, for, for a great career. And you were the first soup uh, here when I was uh, starting off here about eight, almost 18 years ago. And uh, it really was an education. Uh, Admiral Rump, thank you so much for coming back to Preble Hall and, and talking about this, this early part of the career. Thanks for asking me, and also, you know, thank you for the opportunity to tell some sea stories. I mean, they're, they're real things that happened back many years ago now, and um, but they're in my mind like yesterday because they were very intense uh, things and a lot of fun, a lot of challenges, and um, and but uh, having a lieutenant command was was exceptional, and uh, you know the other COs were outstanding people as well, and we had a great time and. Um, we were very fortunate to be there during that period of time. So thank you. And for our listeners, thanks for joining us for another episode of Preble Hall. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please leave feedback, whatever platform you're listening to this, and have a great day. Preble Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.